Well, hey, everybody. It's so good to see you. Thank you for being here this weekend. Hope you're having a great, great, great summer. And I tell you, it's been an unforgettable summer here at Northridge. I am so very proud of the impact of our guest speakers. And I'm so proud of each and every one of you who've been a part of the Northridge family this summer, whether here in Plymouth or at Ann Arbor, Celine, Brighton, Howell, because you've just kept showing up and you've been bringing guests and lives have been changing. It's been such an unforgettable summer. And here's my hope. My hope is that now I'm back on the platform, I don't ruin it, you know. I don't mess it all up because it's been great so far. And I, I hope that you'll continue with us as we are in this series. If you're a, a guest, Unforgettable, this series is about those of us who have the privilege of sharing truth, um, talking about unforgettable truths that have so impacted our lives that we want to share them with you. And it's our prayer not just to share with you our lives, but to hopefully, with these truths, give you something that can forever change your life as well. But we never want you just to come and experience a moment and leave the same. We always want to make sure that God's truth is having a, a huge impact in your life. And the way we do it here is through a conversation. I do need to warn you, though, for all of you who have experienced our summer guests, I refuse to even try to preach like Harvey Carey or Chris Brown. It's just not going to happen. Those boys went to some kind of different preaching school than I've ever been to. I'm going to tell you that right now. But, but I'll go at the conversation that I believe can benefit all of us. I, I, during the summer, as I've been off the platform, I've had time to, you know, introspect and have some moments of evaluation and kind of look at my journey. And there are a couple of areas that I feel like God has been you know, opening my eyes to creating new tension uh, in my life in regards. And these talks in the next couple of weeks of mine will probably be flowing out of that quite a bit. And as I have had time of introspection and looked back kind of over the huge course of my life, um, if I'm really, really honest, what I have to admit that is that, you know, the things that I, by nature at least desire are really messed up. I mean, seriously. It's, it's not my goal to have messed up desires. It's not, you know, my intention, my strategy. But man, by nature, I just really have desires that tend to be quite self-focused, if I'm honest. I mean, from my earliest memories, if I trace them back, I have been at the center of most of my desires. Hey, hey, I'll just give you an example, a simple one that kind of applies to m more important areas. But I remember in sports, um, as I was in a basketball, on a basketball team, um, I remember sitting on the bench one time. I mean, remember this moment like it was yesterday. I was sitting on the bench, and for you smart Alex, yes, that's where I spent most of my time when I was playing sports. But there I was on the bench, and I was, I was exercising my God-given gift, which is probably mostly related to my mouth. And I was with my mouth badgering my coach because I didn't want to be on the bench. Come on, coach, let me in, let me in, coach, let me play, coach, let me go. I mean, I can't believe the guy let me live, right? Because, I mean, I must have been as irritating as a, 
as a mosquito. And let me in, coach, let me in, let me in, let me in, let me in. And as I look back on that, it's, a, it's really a metaphor of a lot of my life, my natural desires, because I wanted in that game. I wanted to play. I wanted to be on the court. But it had nothing to do with making the team any better. I, I didn't care if the team was doing great or poorly. All I cared about was that I wanted to be on the team. In fact, if I'm honest, and once again, I think this traces through a lot of the realities of my personal experience. I, I really believe that even if it meant the team losing, I would have rather been on the court than on the bench. In other words, I would rather the team lose with me playing than the team win with me on the bench. Because it was about me. And sadly, that's not something that I left on the basketball court when I was in middle school or high school. My desires, by nature, just are tangled up and messed up. This is a way I thought about it. I was never born to be a humanitarian, you know? No, no one's ever come to me and said, you know, Brad, you remind me a lot of Albert Schweitzer. No one's ever said, are you related to Mother Teresa because you have so much in common with her? No one's ever done that to me because it's never been true of me, not by nature. Now, I have different goals, and I'm making progress in life, but I'm trying to be honest. My wiring is out of whack. And some of you are sitting here now, especially those of you who are newer to Northridge. Maybe you've been coming all summer, you haven't heard me talk yet, and you're going... Well, I'm not coming back here. I'm going to go to a church where there's a guy that I can actually listen to who I respect. I get it. But before you leave, let me ask you to be just honest for a minute and admit reality for yourself. Because the truth is, as I'm discovering, is I'm not alone in this. It's getting easier and easier for me to admit the reality of my dysfunction as I understand that it's the reality of all of our dysfunction. Oh, we display it in different ways. Some of us in very extroverted ways, some of us in very introverted ways. But to varying degrees, every single one of us has the same problem. By nature, we focus on ourselves. By nature, I is at the center of all of our desires and all of our prayers. And because of it, here's what happens, I'm discovering. We define and pursue life, and we define and pursue success in all of the wrong ways. And there's no one that can be divorced from those two things because all of us want a life. All of us want a life of meaning, of significance. None of us are setting out not to really have a life. And all of us want some sort of success. Not success in the same ways, but we want success. And because I is at the center of all of our desires by nature, we, we pursue that life and we pursue that success in all of the wrong ways. This is why we're not experiencing life as God wanted to, even if we're trying really hard. I look what Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, God's word to us. It says, as it is written, there is no one righteous. That means there's no one who's living life as God designed it. No one living right. Not even one. 
There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, messed up. They've together become worthless. In other words, they've absolutely left the value that God created them on the table. They've, they've lived their lives worthless instead of with value. And then it says there is no one who does good. Not even one. Now I love how God kind of wrote that passage because it really speaks to the way that I read his word. Because I read his word like this. I'm reading through and I'm usually having a debate with God or an argument, at least a discussion. And I'm reading there's no one righteous. Really? There's no one righteous? Really? There's no one that seeks God. There's no one that understands. I go, well, you know, I'm seeking you. And I'm, you know, I think I understand a little bit about you. And there's no one who does good. You know, I don't know. I'm doing some good things. I'm wrestling with God over this. And so he's going through that. And then he throws in those, those last words. Not even one. This is basically how I take it. I know what you're thinking, Paul, and you're an idiot. Not even you. And the same is true of all of us. Because some of us think, you know, I'm doing all right. I mean, most of the world's not wasting a good day in Michigan in church. And look at here. I'm here. I mean, I'm reading the Bible a little bit. I'm doing all kinds of stuff a little bit. I think I'm doing, because not even one. You see, even the best of us has a little bit too much of me at the center. And it's messing up everything. God puts it in another way in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Let me show you this. And this is really the basis of this talk. The foundational truth behind this entire talk comes from Jeremiah 9. It says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, that I exercise kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for it's in these I delight, declares the Lord. See, according to this passage, our greatest desire in life, our highest value, our biggest pursuit, the center of everything we long for in life should be to know and understand God. Because you see, it's only that desire, the desire to know and understand God, that's going to lead us to really experience life and really experience success. You see, only God can genuinely give us the the inner stuff that we're so missing but so much longing for, contentment and value and purpose and significance and hope. Only God can do that. Here's the problem. The desire to know and understand God isn't at the center of most of our pursuits. I remember, I'm not just a human being, not just a Christ follower, I'm a pastor. And I'm just telling you, if I'm not careful, even in all that I do, even though it's spiritually relevant, my pursuits can have God on the periphery and me at the center. I want to have a church that's impacting a lot of people, and I want people to respect my teaching, and I want these kind of things, and and I can be at the center. And so I can be doing all kinds of good God stuff and good Jesus stuff, right? And be nowhere close to truly experiencing life and success because God's not at the center. And and I, I know a lot of believers 
And they're no different than non-believers in this. Most of us here, Christian or non-Christian, don't have God at the center of our pursuit on a daily basis. And this is why we're missing him. This is why we're missing life. You know what? Do you know what lies at the center of my journey more often than not? You know what lies at the center of your journey more often than not? Your, your pursuits? You know what it is? This is funny. The three things God says we shouldn't brag about. In Jeremiah 9, 23, he, he says, you shouldn't brag about these things. It's not that they're not important. It's not that they're not good. It's not that they're not helpful. It's not that it's not a part of life. He just says, this really isn't worth bragging about. And those three areas are the three areas that cover everything we hold valuable in this culture, everything we place as priorities in our life if it's not God. What are those three areas? Wisdom, power, and riches. Try and find in this culture some major pursuit in life that doesn't fit under one of those categories. You're going to find education, you're going to find business and wealth and all of that. You're going to find power. and that, Those are the areas. And rather than, you know, getting down and dirty and attacking the world and attacking me, let me just be honest about myself because that's who I've been dealing with for the last little while. I'll just tell the truth on myself because it sums it up for me. Wisdom. Wisdom. If, if I'm honest in my heart of hearts, I want to be the smartest person in the room. That's why I hang out here a lot. I figure I have a shot. <laughs> just, all right, I'm just kidding, all right? Look at that. I'm not the smartest person in any room I've ever been in unless I was alone, and even then there's a question mark there. But I want people to think I'm the smartest person in the room. I want people to feel... I, it, it makes me feel better about me if I think people think I'm the smartest person in the room. And so you know what I do? I mean, I'm sorry. I'm just being honest. You know what I do? Even though I know I'm not the smartest person in the room, I try and get people to think I am. Can you relate to this? Now, before you answer this question and make a fool of yourself, let me ask you a question that will help you arrive at the right answer. Are you ready? Have you ever nodded in agreement or laughed at a joke when you didn't really understand it? You know, people are talking philosophy and all this stuff, and you don't have a clue what's being said, and you're going, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Or if someone tells a joke and it's like, boom, flying over your head, you have no clue, but everybody's laughing, you go, ha, 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 greatest thing I ever heard. You've done it. I know you have. You just did it here with me. You don't have a clue what I'm talking about. You're laughing, you're crying, wondering where the guest speaker is. <laughs> Let me just tell you, we do it. Why? Because we don't want people to think we're not as smart as them. We don't want people to think that we're stupid. We don't want people that wisdom is very important to us. Have you ever heard it? It's like, that person has a PhD. Why do we whisper that? I mean, we, we, education is like the center of the world. I'm all for education. I think everyone should graduate third grade at least, you know. I, 
I'm for education. It's important. But if we put it at the center of our lives, we're never going to find life or success because it's not the answer. Because no matter how smart you are, without God, you're not very smart. We'll see it. Let's talk about power for a minute, because power is a problem in this world. He says, don't brag about power. You think you have great power, great strength, you're in control. Don't brag about it, because you're not really. And power is a problem with me. I have to tell you, I want power. I want great influence, clout, more control. You know... I still can't figure out why the president doesn't call me every day and ask me what he should do. I'm confused. Remember when they picked the latest pope, you know, and the white smoke came out of the Vatican? I was, I was hurt that they didn't call me and say, we chose you. I mean, I was hurt. I mean, I have this inflated view of my abilities that it's like, I want more influence. I think we all pursue it. That's why we pursue greater positions, all that stuff. Riches, you know, I think money's the number one God in our culture. I think money's the number one value in our world. I think it's what drives most people. Now, I'm going to be as honest as I can. I'm certainly influenced by it, but, but of the three, wisdom, power, and riches, money's the least impacting to me. I, I solved the money thing a little bit when I surrendered to being a pastor because, see, I, I, I grew up in a very successful home. I my dad was an extremely successful attorney, land developer, business guy, very successful. And he had made it very, very clear that he wanted to set me up to kind of be able to build off of what he had done. But Jesus had so transformed my life that I decided I didn't want to pursue that path. I wanted to tell people that Jesus could make a transformational difference in their life, and that's what I do. But when I made that decision, I knew I was going away from what most people live for money and security and putting mine in the hands of God now I know we pastor a very I pastor a very large church and I'm going to tell you I I'm taken care of better than I ever thought I would be in ministry but money's never been the driver for me now I can be influenced by it it can resurrect its head in my life but riches isn't the big thing for me but man oh man wisdom and power they you know they're a mess for me. Interestingly, in our world, these three things, wisdom, power, and money, they sound like the right thing to go after, don't they? They feel like the right thing to go after. They look like the right thing to go after. It's what everybody's living for. It just makes sense. What else is there? And because of it, we celebrate and we honor those who achieve them. I mean, this is what many of our magazines and news shows are about. It's all about celebrating the people who are the smartest and the most powerful and people with the most money. This summer, I had the unique experience of watching a documentary with my wife, Roxanne, and my son. It was a unique experience because of the subject matter of the documentary. It was a 2012 Oscar-nominated documentary. We found it. I enjoy watching documentaries, and so... We watched it, and it blew me away. It was the story of a woman who experienced life in a unique way. Almost two different lives, quite frankly. 
the first part of her life was everything we long for and live for, everything that tends to be the driving force in our desires. And then there was a transformation. Let me show you the first part of her life, and then later in the talk, we'll look at the second. Watch. I have young arms that want to hold you, hold you good Hollywood, in a sense, chose me because I had a series of incredible strokes of luck. There were so many of us in line that day, and I just can't believe that I got the part. I was 19, and just on the threshold of the biggest career that you could have. Well, <laughs> I grew up fast. My life in Hollywood was really going at an amazing level. Well, it was. He had a beautiful part with Marlon Brando. Warren Beatty was another one. He also wanted to open my contract with MGM and 20th Century Fox. That would have made me worth at least a million dollars. Now, we'll see part two in a bit, but from our world's point of view, come on. She's People Magazine. That's success, right? But not from God's point of view. I mean, God takes a very different view of this world. And the sad thing is, many of us who claim to be following him and living for him and knowing him and believing in him don't change our view. I mean, this is what we celebrate. This is what we honor. This is what we kind of strive for, even though we couch it in very spiritual terms. But know this, in Jeremiah 9, God warns us of the destructive potential of making wisdom, power, and riches our pursuit, the center of our pursuit. Uh, let me just show you. There's danger in making wisdom the goal, God says. Romans 1.22. All although they claim to be wise, they really became fools. So there are people who pursue being the smartest person in the room, and they really become the town idiot. And look at why. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord putting the Lord first, pursuing him at the center, seeing him as the supreme value of life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where wisdom starts. And knowledge of the Holy One, truly knowing God, that's where understanding begins. Here's the problem. You can pursue wisdom and understanding all you want, but if God's not at the center, you will never arrive there. If you don't start in the right place, You'll never end up in the right place. And I'm telling you, I've listened to people who have IQs that double mine. They're brilliant. And they're stupid. Because they're using all their brilliance to formulate things that start away from God and end away from God and that never even gets close to wisdom. What a waste. Many of us are in the same thing. There's danger, God says, potential destructive power in making 
making power, control, influence the goal. Look at, look at Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. He was a powerful, powerful man. Verse 11, I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the strong. In other words, it's not the fast that win the race. It's not the strong that win the battle. Nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. Because time and chance play a role. It happens to them all. Things go wrong. There's danger in making power the goal. You know why? Because no matter how much power you have, you have no power at all. No matter how much control you have, you have no control at all. Time and chance happen to them. And yet, man, we keep looking for more of it. The Apostle Paul, who, before he came to faith in Christ, was a man who wanted to dominate and control. Power-hungry. But Jesus broke him. And then he learned that he never had power at all until he was broken and knew Jesus. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. But Jesus said to me, Paul says, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, I'm going to boast now all the more gladly about that which I used to hide from people, pretend I didn't have. I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. Now, where do you find that in the world? And he says, and the reason I'm going to boast in my weaknesses is so Christ's power, real power, may rest on me. And so he says, that's why now, for Christ's sake, I delight in the things that I used to complain about, hate, and get angry at God over. Insults and hardships, persecutions and difficulties. And he, here's why. He's because when I experience those things, they help me to know I'm not in control at all. I'm weak. And he goes, and it's when I'm weak that I experience real strength. You know what I find? As I pursue power and influence and control, I'm pursuing the wrong thing because no matter how much I get of those things, without God I have nothing. He needs to be at the center. Don't brag about that. Brag about knowing and understanding God. Then he says, there's danger in making money the goal. Our culture needs to hear this. You need to hear this. Huge danger. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. It drives humanity. But here's the problem. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We're living for that which doesn't add up to life. And then he tells this story about a guy who hit the mother load and just thought about himself and how he could use it, didn't think about anyone else or being generous or God or anything. And look at how Jesus ends that story in Luke chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. God said to that, fool, that guy, you fool. You've held on to all that stuff, but this very night you're going to die. Who's going to get what you have now? And this is how... And this is where it applies to you and me. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. You can have all the wisdom in the world, all the power in the world, all the wealth in the world, but man, if God's not at the center, you know what you have? Nothing. This kind of sums it all up in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. What, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Let me just share the unforgettable truth that has really become transformative in my life, set me on new paths in my life. It's the reality that life and success are only fully experienced 
when we know and understand God. It's the whole deal. Don't brag about wisdom. Don't brag about might. Don't brag about wealth. <laughs> brag about one thing because only one thing is worth bragging about. That you know and understand God. You see, the greatest and most worthwhile pursuit in life is not the pursuit of being number one in your career. It's to having God number one in your life. That's the list we should want to be on. But I just don't hear us talking about that. You know, in my particular world, we talk about, you know, what number are we on the largest churches list? Who gives a flip? Do you think when I get to heaven, he's going to say, do you know you were number 15? I'd say, yeah, <laughs> I know. I worked hard for that, pal. It's just stupid. I don't care what number you are in your career, what number you are. The best husband in the world. You probably have the cup. It's not true. It's a lie, you know? We keep pursuing the wrong list. The only list that's important is this. God's number one in my life. Because it's the only thing that leads to anything significant. You see, when we find him, we find what we're looking for. Look at it, in my own pursuit. I know what I'm looking for as a pastor. I know what people are looking for. I deal with a lot of people. Let me tell you what we're looking for. We want to know what we were created to be. There's only one way to discover that, and that's by finding God. Because when you really know God, you find out what he created you to be. We want to know what we were created to do. This is one of the number one questions we're asked around here. You know, how do I know what I'm supposed to do? Look at I don't know. But I know the one who does, and when you know him, he'll let you know too. When you find God, when you know and understand him, you find what you were created to do. He needs to be the center. But here's what we do. We keep searching for ourselves. I'm trying to find myself. What was I created to be? You're never going to find yourself because you have you at the center instead of Jesus. I want to know what I was created to do. No, you don't, because if you wanted to know what you were created to do, you would make knowing the creator your number one goal. But it's not. We're wanting to include him, but we're not wanting to make him the center. And I, remember, I, I'm dealing with this. I know you are as well. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek God first and his ways first. And then look what he says. And all these other things will be given to you as well. Do you know why we don't get the wisdom we want and the control, the power we want and the prosperity of life we want? You know why we don't get the fullness we're looking for? It's because we don't seek him first. Those things without him leave us empty. With him, even without those things, we're full. Look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 11 through 13. God says, for I know the plans I have for you. I've got plans for you. This was written to Israel and about specific things, but it, it in principle is true of everyone he loves and everyone who's his child. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They're plans to prosper you, not to make you rich and drive Cadillacs, to prosper you, to make you full and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope 
and a future. And then, when we're experiencing that kind of relationship, you'll call upon me and come and pray to me and I'll listen to you. We'll be in this intense relationship and you'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. God wants us to make knowing and understanding him the center of our lives, not because he needs us focusing on him. He's good with or without us. He wants us to put him at the center of our lives because he knows that with him we have all we need and without him we have nothing we need. When I know and understand God, when I really know and understand him, I'm going to be able to better understand what he thinks. When I know and understand God, I'll better understand what he thinks of this world and what he thinks of people and what he thinks of me. And the truth is the reason we pursue wisdom and power and riches is because we're trying to make ourselves feel better about who we are. When if we would just pursue knowing and understanding God, we wouldn't need to feel better about who we are because we would know who we are. We would know that he loves us and he cares about us and our, his, our failures don't destroy his love for us but it magnifies his love for us and that he can redeem us and he can restore us and we would know that we were created fearfully and wonderfully but we're struggling with insecurities and low esteem and we're trying to make people think we're smarter than we are or we're richer than we are we're more powerful than we are we're trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves when all of that would be solved when we just know and understand God when I know and understand God I'm going to be better equipped to know what he thinks about life and how I should live it, about values and about relationships. When I know and understand God, I'll better be able to understand what he thinks about church and giving and serving the poor and politics. Knowing and understanding God is what opens us up to knowing how to live and how to love. And I'm telling you, from my own journey and from my journey with others, we're having a hard time knowing how to live and how to love. And the reason is because we're looking for all the things that won't get us there instead of making him the thing. Because when we really know and understand God, we'll know how to live. And when we really know and understand God, we'll know how to love. And you know how I know that I'm not knowing and understanding God as well as I ought? It's because I'm not living as well as I ought and I'm not loving as well as I'm, I ought. How about you? Man, seek him first and all these other things, they'll come into their their right place and some of you are going and I know because I've, I've had this argument with God and myself too you're going but I'm doing everything I can to know him I mean come on why else would I on one of the best days in Michigan's year I'd come into a place with no windows and a fake waterfall seriously I mean I'm in church I mean I'm trying to do all the stuff necessary to know God and understand God and I get it Think, I, because I'm doing more stuff than you are. I mean, this is my life. I live, live in ministry, right? But let, let me just tell you, knowing God is far more than just doing the stuff. Here's what is so important to start understanding. Now listen to me, because most of us don't get this. Knowing God is far more than just thinking about God and believing in God and talking about God, and claiming God, and doing stuff for God. 
Knowing and understanding God involves more than just reading the Bible and listening to talks and going to church and serving and giving and listening to Christian music and wearing Christian apparel and putting Christian bumper stickers on our car. To which, I've seen you drive. Take the bumper stickers off your car. I'm telling you, if this is the stuff that leads to knowing and understanding God, then I would profoundly know and understand God, and I'm not there yet. Because it's not where it is. You know why? Knowing God, get this, knowing God is relational. It's relational. It's, it's like being married. And come on, being happily married is more than just doing the stuff of being married. I mean, I think most of us have found this out. But I'm doing all the right stuff. It doesn't, it doesn't work. You know, you think about the stuff of being married. Living in the same home, sleeping in the same bed, sharing the same expenses, sharing the responsibilities of life, you know, eating meals together, coming home, you know, at least once a week, those kind of things. Doing the stuff of marriage does not make a happy marriage. You, you know what makes a happy marriage? Becoming one. It's a journey, man. You know what makes a happy marriage? Because a marriage is relational. Becoming one in thought. Growing so close together where you have the same view of the world. You're not misaligned, you're aligned. Becoming one in heart where you've grown so close to each other. You value the same things and desires the same thing. Growing so close that you become one in your pursuits. You have the same goals and the same activities because you're one. That's just not how most of us approach marriage. Most of us approach marriage as a function instead of a relationship. And most of us approach God as a function. I read his Bible, I went to church, I sang a couple songs, I put a quarter in the basket. I know that because that's how much we get at the end of a weekend. <laughs> Sorry. But you know your heart. Knowing God isn't a function. Knowing God is a relationship. You know what it involves? It involves becoming one with him. One in thought where you view the world in the same way he does. I'm telling you, I have a hard time with that. I want him to view the world like I view it. Very seldom am I viewing the world like he views it. I want to become if we're going to really know and understand, we have to become one with him in heart where we desire and long for the same things, which means what I'm praying for matches what he wants in this world instead of me trying to get him to match what I want in this world. We become one in our pursuits where all of my goals and activities match his goals and activities. Now, come on. Start looking at your relationship with God like that. Whew, it's just easier to say, well, I went to church this week. I'm good. Knowing God is not a function. Look at if you really want to experience life in its fullness, you have to know God. And knowing God is not a function, it's a relationship. How are you doing? It should be at the center of everything you are. It's not simple. It's complex. It's a mystery that's never fully, fully solved, but it's worth it. It's worth a lifetime of pursuit. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. He's the one that says, just as marriage is, so is the relationship between me and the church, and the church isn't a building, it's people. You want to really know and understand God, you need to pursue it like marriage. He's the one. Now with that in mind, the story of Dolores Hart takes on an entirely new view. It actually might even make a little bit of sense. Look what happened to her. I was on Broadway doing Pleasure of His Company. I was having fatigue after nine months in the show. A friend of mine said, well, I know this place in the, in the country. They're very easygoing nuns. Just go for a few days and rest. So I came and, and I really loved it. I came away with a sense of peace, a sense of interior renewal. I said to the Reverend Mother, do you think that I might ever have a vocation here? She said, no. Dolores, don't be silly. Go back and do your movie thing. I said, oh, good. Why'd I ever bring it up? When I was in Hollywood, I did become engaged to marry Don Robinson. From the moment I met her, I knew on our first date, we had dinner for three hours. And at the end of our dinner, I asked her to marry me. I knew in my heart. And my, I could feel it. It was all there, what I was looking for. I said, well, Don, let's not make any big deal of it and try to keep it quiet. Well, within three weeks, Edith Head was starting the dress. Invitations were made. Don was an architect, so he had already begun working on a house. I think the thing that bothered me was I had not resolved the thought of religious life. My intention of entering the monastery and marrying Don were running neck and neck. I was thinking about going back to Regina Laudis. What I loved about cloistered life was the capacity that it offered for true communion with God. I said to her, Dolores, are you telling me you could be, gonna be, go to the Abbey and become a nun? And she said, yes, I am. Well, I, I totally collapsed. It was just impossible to explain. It was just it was, how, how do you explain God? How do you explain love? I don't know where my mind was, except I was in love with God. The first night, I felt like I had jumped off a 20-story building and landed flat on my butt. I always carried a mission when I was younger. 
that God had given me a purpose for what I was doing. I felt I was supposed to be here for something beyond just the aggravation of it. I think people come to speak to us about every possible form of suffering that hits the human heart. My role is to help a person to discover you can always find hope. And if you can find hope, you might find faith. You didn't take that picture. <laughs> Let me see that picture. I dated many women after Dolores. Not right away. It took a while. But I never found the love like Dolores. It's now a way of life that she's in the Abbey. And I love her. I've come to the Abbey for 47 years. I think that says something. Take care of yourself. Yes. Love you. Love you too. Bye. I never felt I was leaving Hollywood. I never felt I was leaving anything that I was given. The Abbey was like a grace of God that just entered my life in a way that was totally unexpected. And God was the vehicle. He was the bigger Elvis. As I was watching that documentary, I have to tell you it's a lot longer, gets into more detail. I, when she made this turn and she decided to join the Abbey, I mean, I went, what a mistake. What? I mean, she, come on. She was set up. She could make an impact. Think about what she could do. And then towards the end of this thing, when she went, God was my bigger Elvis just blew me apart don't get lost in the fact that she became a nun get lost in the fact that she realized that God was more important than anything and whether she was in Hollywood whatever God chose for her to do her love for God was big enough to dramatically change her choices in life. It doesn't matter if she's a nun or a lawyer or a teacher or a factory worker. Her knowing and understanding God changed her choices in life. That, that's the big so what of this thing for me. Knowing God demands a faith that changes our choices, changes our choices from living for the things that don't matter, wisdom and power and money, to living to know and understand him. And here's my problem. Most of us aren't changing our choices. We're changing our language. Jesus is a part of it. We're changing where we put our butts. We're in church now once in a while, and we're, we're changing... The music we listen to and the other things we do. But, but we're not changing our choices. 
in the name of Jesus, we're still doing the same thing. We're pursuing wisdom and power and riches. We're just trying to use God to get us there now. God will not be used. It's time for us to make him the center. And we make him the center. We'll know what we were created to be and what we are created to do. That's where she went. We were created to be and do different things. But he needs to be at the center, or I promise you this, you'll miss it. I'll miss it. Now, our only chance at really knowing and understanding God is found in Jesus. It's our only chance. So we need to take the faith we have, no matter how big it is or how small it is, and we need to make the choice to change our focus in life from whatever it's been on to Jesus at the center. That's what Hebrews 12, 2 is saying. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to change our choices. If I'm a lawyer, Jesus needs to be at the center of how I do law. If I'm a businessman, Jesus needs to be at the center of how I do business, not the bottom line. The bottom line is important to business, but Jesus needs to be at the center. Wouldn't you rather your business fail and Jesus be at the center than your business win and Jesus be nowhere? Don't you remember my story from sports? I would rather the team lose with me playing than the team win with me on the bench. What a miserable way to play life. It's time to put Jesus at the center. Look at Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, a faith that changes our choices, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Dolores Hart believed so deeply in God that it changed her choice of how she was going to live. How deeply do you believe in God? How has it changed your choices? If not at all, then you're not really experiencing him. The unforgettable truth is life and success will never be fully experienced until we genuinely know and understand God. It's time we let him change who we are. And when we do, it changes everything. Now, some who are here right now in Plymouth Summit, Ann Arbor Celine, Brighton Hall, Church Online are watching this in another way. You say, I don't even, I don't know God. I mean, how do I know God? Well, you know God by simply opening your life to him. Look, look at what John 1.12 says. It says, but as many as received him who put their trust, their belief in his name, God gives them the right to become his children. You just have to open your life to him by faith. And so just before I close the talk, I'm going to ask if you would, wherever you are, just, if you just bow your hearts in prayer, just bow for a moment. If you're a believer already, talk to God about if he's at the center or the sidelines of your life. But if you're here and you go, I don't know him, why not make the choice to pray with me right now? Take my words and make them the expression of your faith to God. Just say, Jesus, you've been nowhere close to the center of my life. I've been at the center of my life and my choices. I've sinned against you. I've left you out. But I know that you died on the cross because the wages of my sin is death. You died for me. 
and you rose again so that you could give me new life. You could resurrect my life. And so I'm just trusting you, receiving you, asking you to change me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you did just pray with me, if you were in one of our live experiences, we gave you a program when you came in and there's a little perforated card. All you have to do is take it out, fill it out, and on the bottom it says you prayed to receive Jesus. Check that off, and then there are boxes easy to find as you leave our auditoriums, and we'll send you some information about next steps you can take in your relationship with God. And if you're watching online, hit the what's next button, and we'll do the same for you. You want an unforgettable life. There's only one way to experience it. Make the unforgettable God the center of your life. It'll change you forever. Now, just before you go, I believe it's always important to go to inspiring things that can inspire us spiritually, and we have an opportunity for you this week. This coming Wednesday night, August 21st at 7 p.m., this Wednesday night, here at the Plymouth campus. So if you're at Ann Arbor Selene or Brighton Howell, you want to come to Plymouth, it's going to be worth the drive. We're having our first ever outside baptism celebration. It is going to be huge. We've transformed our back part of the campus into a baptistry. We've got pools and landscaping, going to have a huge worship experience. It's going to be unbelievable. Weather forecast... A miracle for Michigan is good right now. So that's awesome. And get this, over 400 people are already committed to being baptized. 400. You don't want to miss this. And if you haven't yet, if you've put your faith in Jesus, but you haven't yet taken the step of baptism, this is your opportunity. Don't miss this one. This is a memorable event. Uh, if you want, if you're at the Plymouth campus, all you have to do is go to the activity center, which is out the auditorium and into the room behind it, and we have a whole team that will answer your questions, help you engage it, and decide if this is what you want to do at this time. Love for you to do it. If you're watching online, you can check it out online. We'll work with you there. It's going to be great. Don't miss it. Unforgettable. That's what it'll be. Unforgettable. That's what knowing God is. Have a great week. <clears throat>